Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Today, I'm talking to Nir Ayal. Nir is a behavior scientist and former video game programmer and app developer. Nir studies the intersection between psychology, technology, and behavior. His first book, Hooked, explained how app developers create habit-forming and addictive technology. His next book, Indistractable, teaches us how to defend our attention from these distractions. Reading Indistractable changed my life. Like many post-traumatic parents, I am prone to distraction. I believe trauma sets our brains up for distraction, and we need to be mindful of that. After reading Nir's book, I knew we had to hear from him. He says he's a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks, as well as the slightly more prestigious Stanford School of Business, so we know he's a default member of the post-traumatic parenting club. No wonder he was able to write such a disruptive book. Like all trauma survivors, he's creative and able to think outside the box. Nir, welcome to the show. The post-traumatic parenting community can't wait to hear from you. This is the most anticipated podcast episode to date. When I was reading Indistractable, right, I was thinking about PTSD survivors because that's my community. And I was thinking about a lot of us are so prone to distraction because distraction actually is a very adaptive tool for somebody who has PTSD in the sense that we're actually taught to do that by therapists, right? If you're like doing a visualization, for example, you're actually literally distracting yourself from where you currently are and you're like purposefully using distraction. Distractions used as a technique for panic attacks, right? You think about something else rather than what your brain naturally wants you to think about. So in reading your book, I was thinking everybody with PTSD, as we're rejoining our lives and we're putting our lives back together, should really be reading this book because we are like the people who are most prone to distraction. Is there anything specific for this community that you have to offer? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first place to start is to understand what do we mean by this term distraction? What, what is distraction actually? And so the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So what is the opposite of distraction? Most people will say the opposite of distraction is focus, but that is not true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction that both traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O, and that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, pulls you towards the actions that you plan to do with intent, pulls you towards your values, and helps you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not done with intent, anything that is against your values and pulls you away from the person you want to become. So this is really, really important. You see, there is no such thing as a good distraction. Distraction is never a good thing. There is no such thing as an adaptive use of distraction. What I think you're referring to is diversion. 
A distraction is defined as something that is not what you plan to do, right? Whereas traction is an act that you do plan to do, that you are doing with intent, with something done with forethought. Diversion is great. You can, you can, an act of traction can be a diversion. A diversion is defined as, as a refocusing of attention. Well, that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with the refocusing of attention. As you mentioned, we use that in therapy all the time. We use that uh, for children who are, uh, have to undergo painful medical procedures. We divert their attention all the time, <laughs> right? right? And so, that, but that's done with intent. Distraction is not the same thing as diversion. Distraction is when I plan to do one thing and now I'm doing something else, right? That's an unintentional refocusing of attention, whereas a, a diversion can be very intentional. So watching a movie is diverting attention, right? That's a, that can be a healthy diversion. Reading a book, taking your mind off of, of things by spending some time with your family or uh, meditating or painting, those can all be healthy diversions of attention. It's about how you decide to spend your time and attention that really matters. That is the difference between traction and distraction is one word. And that one word is forethought. Got it. So it's about, are you moving towards your values or not? As opposed to, are you, I mean, I know for me, for example, right? Work is the ultimate distraction. You could look at someone like me as a very productive person. I can work for incredibly long periods of time. If my brain is excited about something, it's almost physically painful for me to like concentrate on something else, which when you're a graduate student, which was, you know, my past and you have small children, then, you know, you can imagine what happens, right? Like I could write my dissertation for 20 hours on end. My husband would come into the room where I was writing and be like, it's morning. I'd be like, oh, you know, where'd the last eight hours go? This is such a great point because we tend to have this moral hierarchy of, well, how you spend your time, oh, that's frivolous. Video games, oh, what a waste of time. Facebook, Instagram, oh, that's a waste of time. That's mind-melding mush, right? No, anything you plan to do with your time is fine, can be an act of attraction. We need to stop this ridiculous dialogue that technology is hijacking your brain, that it's addicting everyone. It's not true and it's not helpful. And on the other side of the equation are these actions that we somehow think are morally superior, you know, in our culture, work. Oh, if you're working, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Not if you intended to spend time with your kids. If you planned to have a nice dinner with your children and now you're checking your phone or you can't be pulled away from your desk because you're checking email or making a phone call to a business colleague, that is just as much of a distraction as playing a video game. Right. If it's not what you plan to do with intent, it is distraction. Right. And that's so interesting because I agree with you. There is this moral hierarchy. And I think people seem to think that if you're working and being productive, then in some ways, that's the highest level of being amazing and like, you know, hustling and doing what you meant to do. But if I'm not going to sleep and tomorrow is going to be a lousy day, then I am distracted by my work. Right. And I think people think that's not a distraction, but of course it is. I also want to ask a little bit about when you talk about willpower as not being a finite resource. So I'll confess, I normally think of willpower as a finite resource. I very often will tell people things like don't split your willpower. Right. I mean, I know for me, for example, when I was focusing on healthier eating, which had nothing to do for me with weight loss or things, the normal reasons, I, you know, went to a naturopathic doctor who said cut sugar out of your diet as a way to manage your arthritis. Because again, if you're typing for a lot of hours, you want your fingers not to hurt. 
So I said, you know what I have to do? I need to get rid of the foods that I absolutely can't resist because they split my attention, which for me are literally two things. There are two foods in the world that are very hard for me to resist. Stale Twizzlers and this Israeli treat called leather, which is like dried fruit leather that's very thick. Like the two things I can't resist. I could resist like the most delectable chocolate cake in the world. Wait, eh. did, you say, did you say stale Twizzlers? Stale Twizzlers. <laughs> they have to be hard. There was a wow. vending machine in NYU that used to sell these little packets of Twizzlers and they were ancient and they were like perfect. That's awesome. I love that you have something so specific that you know about yourself. I think that's wonderful. And that is certainly a technique that we can use. And, and this is, there's four tactics to becoming indistractable, four big strategies. The third of four is to hack back the external triggers. And it's actually one of the easier techniques. Hacking back the external triggers means that we remove from our environment or we manipulate our environment so that we're not constantly being led to distraction. Instead, we're led to, to traction. Uh, so it's things like, for example, hey, if you know you have a particular penchant for stale Twizzlers, yeah, don't have them in the house. That's a great thing. And, and I used to do that. I still do this with uh, many things in my life. I decided to get rid of sugary soda in the house. That was the first step. And this is called progressive extremism, where you progressively excise things from your life, but only, only if it's easy to do, okay, and you can do it for the rest of your life. Okay, this is called progressive extremism. You slowly get more extreme because you don't, the problem with fad diets is that you, they're temporary, right? Of course, we're going right. to gain back the weight if we go back to our old behavior. So progressive extremism says that you take these small steps that are super easy to do. So for me, it was no sugary beverages in the house. Okay, if I want a Coke, I can go out to the 7-Eleven. I can have it when I'm out. Uh, I can have it at a restaurant, but not in the house. I can have diet soda in the house but not in the house. And then I took another small step. Okay, you know what? No diet soda in the house, only diet soda out of that, you know, small, small, small steps. And so that removal of external triggers can be ex incredibly helpful. So this is simple stuff like changing the notification settings on your phone, clearing your desktop, you know, simple things that, that is really kindergarten stuff. I don't spend a ton of time uh, talking about in the book, Indistractable, because it's such basic stuff. I cover it just a little bit, but it's something that everyone can do very quickly. I think the more important stuff that we have to cover is not just the external triggers. The external triggers are the things around us, the pings, the dings, the rings, the temptations that can lead us towards distraction. But the leading cause of distraction is not the external triggers at all. The leading cause of distraction are what we call the internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. And that is where we have to begin because you see, distraction and procrastination, these are not moral failings. You're not a bad person. There's nothing, probably nothing broken about you, right? What it means is simply that we don't have the tools at our disposal to deal with emotional discomfort in a healthy way that leads us towards traction rather than unhealthy distraction. So once we learn those techniques, starting with step number one has to be mastering the internal triggers because the most important lesson from what I learned of the five years writing this book was that time management is pain management. Okay, let me say that again. Time management is pain management. It's all about dealing with those uncomfortable sensations that the root cause of distraction, when you look at why people go off track, why don't they do what they say they're going to do despite full well knowing what they want to do? Why don't they do they, those things? It's always a desire to escape an uncomfortable sensation boredom, loneliness, anxiety, fatigue, stress. 
it's always about that internal trigger. So that has to be where we begin. And, and back to your, you asked this wonderful question around willpower. Uh, one of the things that I was really shocked to discover in my research was that indistractable people, people who live with a high degree of self-efficacy, people who keep promises to themselves and others, they don't have a lot of willpower. Uh, they don't even have a lot of self-control. In fact, the reason I wrote this book was because I don't have either of those things. <laughs> I've always been a person who has struggled with self-control and willpower. I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life, wow. and I've always struggled with self-control and willpower. And it turns out the people who are, uh, who are indistractable, they don't have a lot of self-control and willpower. What they have is a system in place. Because again, you know, the antidote to impulsiveness, distraction and procrastination is really a problem of impulse control. But the remedy to impulse, impulsivity is forethought, that there is no level of impulsivity that we can't control if we simply plan ahead, if we take steps today to make sure that we don't get distracted tomorrow. And one of the techniques that I recommend, there are three big strategies to mastering internal triggers reimagining the triggers, reimagine the task, and reimagining your temperament. And, and willpower, and specifically this concept uh, that's called ego depletion, is probably one of the most pervasive and pernicious myths out there these days. And it's not, for, it's not anybody's fault, but the, the problem was that you know, we have this replication crisis happening right now in the social sciences, oh, yeah. specifically in psychology that I'm sure everybody's, oh, yeah. you know, we in the field know about this all too well. So a few years ago, there was a, a book about willpower that a very prominent researcher published that espoused this theory of ego depletion, that we run out of willpower like we would run out of gas in a gas tank. And the researcher showed that, you know, look, what, here's what happens, that if you work on a hard task, you run out of your ability to resist temptation as you expend willpower. Unfortunately, when other researchers looked at this study and decided to replicate it, they found that they couldn't do so. That in fact, this idea that willpower is a depletable resource, that we run out of willpower, doesn't actually exist. And, and let me tell you, I was the first to be surprised by this because I would do this all the time. I would come home from work and I would say, oh man, I'm spent. I've had such a hard day. I, I can't resist. I, I deserve a reward. Let me grab that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I have no willpower left. Give me that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix, right? Because right, it's I'm permission spent, giving. Quote, exactly, exactly. Right. I, I'm spent, quote unquote. And I believed, even though I didn't know the term at the time, I believed that I had spent all my willpower. It turns out that when other researchers tried to replicate these studies, they found that for the vast majority of people, this is not the case. There is no such thing as, as ego depletion. It turns out, as far as we know, even the concept of willpower right now is actually being challenged as a myth itself. But there was one group of people who in fact did run out of willpower. One group of people really did expend willpower and burn it up kind of like you would burn up gas in a gas tank. And those people and only those people were people who believed that willpower was a limited resource. So it was like a limiting belief for them. Exactly. If you're the kind of person who believes that you're spent, you will be. And we hear a very similar narrative today in all sorts of harm inflation is what we call it. That when we believe we have, quote unquote, an addictive personality, when we believe 
that we ran out of willpower, when we believe that we have a short attention span, it comes true. <laughs> it's a right. self-fulfilling prophecy. I want to ask you something. I also think those studies about willpower have a lot to do with divided attention and not as much to do with whatever the construct of willpower is, right? Because mm-hmm. if you look at a lot of those studies, it was not about can you do the math task or the distraction task or a stroop test or whatever it was while and just do it. It was can you do it while there's a chocolate chip cookie sitting on the desk in front of you, which is going to naturally split your focus. There's a great mm-hmm. not study. There was a great um, clip. It was on one of the like, I don't know, talk shows, maybe it was Oprah, maybe it was Ellen, something where they put a young woman in a room and they told her she had this really boring filing job to do. And then they left this like gorgeous, like fruit and chocolate platter in the room. And they said, oh, that's for an event we're having later. Don't touch the, you know, don't touch the fruit and chocolate platter. And then it was really funny because you know how it was like one grape was a little uneven. So the woman like ate the grape or maybe something fell on the floor. So she ate that. And then she's trying to do this boring filing task. And like clearly the chocolate is calling her name. And like you can imagine and like the audience is sitting and laughing and right and like watching it. That had nothing to do with willpower and everything to do with divided attention. She wouldn't have gone through this building searching for chocolate to steal had it not been directly in her line of sight while she's trying to do something super boring. Sure. Absolutely. And and so, yeah, absolutely. So hacking back those external triggers so that we're not constantly tempted by them is is a great tool. But I would argue that 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 will eventually fail because, look, there are fruit baskets in life, right? Right. Metaphorically speaking, there's all kinds of interesting stuff on the Internet that we just can't wait to go check out as opposed to having to do some boring project. There's all kinds of things to take our mind off of boredom or loneliness or this crazy state of the world right now that is so anxiety producing. There are limitless ways to escape reality. And that is the the root cause of the problem. And so what we find is that, in fact, that it's the people who can cope with that temptation, who can cope with that urge, not by telling themselves, no, I will not do it. We know now that abstinence can actually really backfire for for many of these temptations, that strict abstinence is is like a uh, rubber band, right? That... When you keep telling yourself, don't do it, 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 okay, fine, I'll do it, giving in to that temptation relieves the reason that we want the thing in the first place. It's telling ourselves no that actually creates the internal trigger in the first place. This is actually, we're finding out why cigarettes are so addictive. There's a lot of research that shows that it's not just the nicotine, that in fact, nicotine plays much less of a role than we originally thought. One of the reasons people really do get addicted to cigarettes is because telling themselves not to smoke is so painful, so cognitively taxing. And the only way to relieve that internal trigger of, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, is to give in. And so you're essentially training your brain again and again and again. Every time you resist and release, resist and release, resist and release, you're training your brain that the only way to solve that pain is with this substance. Right? right. So what we have to do essentially is not to, to use strict abstinence. What we want to do is to train ourselves to deal with that discomfort in a healthy way. So let me give you some examples. And this comes out of acceptance and commitment therapy. This isn't oh, stuff sure. I made up. It's been around for decades. For example, one thing that I do almost every single day, you know, I, I write every day. I've written two bestsellers and hundreds of articles. It never gets easier. It's always hard. It's always difficult. It's never a habit. It's fully intentional. Uh, And many times while I'm writing, I'm full of internal triggers, right? 
is this any good? This is boring. I should go research something. I should go Google this thing. And I'm constantly tempted by distraction to do anything but do the darn writing, which is what I need to do. So what I do instead of telling myself, no, don't check email, don't check the news, don't, uh, don't get distracted. What I do instead is to say, not no, I say not yet. And the way I use this is called the 10 minute rule. And this is again, I didn't make this up. I can't take credit for it. It's been around for a while now. Uh, It comes out of uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. The idea here is that when you face a temptation, whether it's smoking that cigarette, uh, eating that piece of chocolate cake, you know, you don't want really need, or uh, uh, even, you know, Googling something or checking Facebook or Instagram or the news or whatever you think might distract you, you're not going to tell yourself, no, you're going to tell yourself not yet. And what you're going to do is to set a timer. Many times I'll just pick up my phone and I'll say, you know, set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll put my phone down. And my job for the next 10 minutes is to do what's called surfing the urge. Because what we know, if willpower is not a limited resource, the question is, what the heck is it, right? What is it? It turns out what we believe, this is according to Michael Inslich, who's at the University of Toronto, he says that willpower is like an emotion. And just like we don't run out of happy, right? You don't ever hear somebody saying, oh, I'm having such a great time, but now I'm not because I ran out. Right. You don't hear somebody saying, oh, I'm so mad at you. But now I ran out of, you know, anger. You know, it doesn't work that way. And so if willpower is simply an emotion, the way emotions work is that they crest and then they subside. Right. But in the moment, it feels like we're always going to be angry, like we're always going to be uh, anxious, like we're always going to be stressed. But of course, that's never the case. If we give ourselves those 10 minutes, to simply surf the urge, to let that emotion crest and then subside, what we find is that nine times out of 10, if you just take those 10 minutes to give yourself one of two options, there's a fork in the road, you can either get back to the task at hand or sit with that sensation for a bit. Just explore it with curiosity, not with contempt, but with curiosity. Okay, what am I experiencing right now? Where is this coming from? And we change the dialogue. And I tell you how to change this dialogue so that we're changing it to enhance our self-image as opposed to pulling down our self-image. So we're not telling ourselves, oh, I'm getting distracted again and I have a short attention span or an addictive personality. Instead, what I'm saying is, okay, this is what it feels like to get better at something. This is what it takes to improve at my craft. So you're changing your narrative with yourself, not buying all this BS out there about how, you know, that that if you feel bad, that's somehow bad. No, as you know, through post-traumatic stress, Dealing with negative sensations in a healthful way can be a, a, a growth experience. And so we're changing the narrative as we're getting distracted for those 10 minutes to simply say, I can either sit with that sensation and explore it with curiosity or get back to the task at hand. And nine times out of 10, if we just give ourselves that bit of time, we'll find that by the time the clock runs out, we're back at work, we're doing the thing we plan to do. The cigarette is no longer tempting. The chocolate cake with well, a thought has already passed and we're on to something else. We're on to do, back to doing what we said we were going to do. It's interesting what you said about um, acceptance and commitment therapy because I do practice acceptance and commitment therapy and that whole idea of just saying to yourself, I'm allowed to be uncomfortable or yeah, I'm upset right now. What happened was upsetting. I'm allowed to be upset. I'm going to observe it curiously. I actually was working with a post-traumatic family recently and I was explaining acceptance and commitment therapy to the family as a whole. And it was interesting because it took a while for the mom and the kids to get it, but they were starting to get it. 
I couldn't really get dad sort of on board with the program. And I said, you know what? You're coming from the business world. I have a great book for you to read. Forget all the stuff I'm giving you about act. I want you to read Indistractable and then come back to me. So he did um, because he's the kind of man as busy as he is. He'll do what he needs to do for his kids. And if, you know, the psychologist is saying do this, he'll do it. And I said, and he said, okay, I don't see the relevance to what you're talking about. I said, you know, the whole like time management is pain management. That's what we've been talking about, about it's okay to have your uncomfortable emotions because it's your uncomfortable emotions. First of all, that give us wisdom anyway, right? They give us tons of information about life, but also our uncomfortable emotions are what end up distracting us, right? You're having uncomfortable emotions about what happened to your family. Those are going to be normal. And what you're doing, because I get it, you're distracting with work, which makes you feel productive. But we've talked about how we're, we now value family so much more, given the tragedy that befell the family. You're stating that what you want to do is spend more time with your family. And then what you're actually doing is going out and going back to work, saying to yourself, and I get the trauma thought, saying to yourself, my family must have enough money. I must care for this family. I must protect this family. And that's very, very well. I get where that thinking is coming from. If you were raised in poverty and you're no longer in poverty, you're always going to think that way. But your stated value was, I want to spend more time with this family now that I see how precious family is. And that's not what you're doing. And I just gave a cute analogy of if I say that I really, really want to eat a salad right now. So I take out the eggs and the flour and the sugar and I start baking chocolate cake and then I bake a really good chocolate cake. And then I say, where's my salad? And then I say, okay, so I'm going to bake even more chocolate cake. And no matter how much chocolate cake I bake, somehow no salad materializes. I might've baked a great yeah. chocolate cake, but I wanted salad. And that's what you're doing yeah. here, sir, right? You, you really want to spend time with your family. So you go back to work. I get it. Yeah, I get I, the value. It's, it's, I think it's a wonderful metaphor. And, and I, w- I would even argue that I don't care if you stuff yourself silly with chocolate cake. If you, what you want to do is to work all day and all night, it's not up to me or anyone else to tell you that that shouldn't be your values, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think that telling people that I think is quite liberating because who am I to say, right? If should someone have told Einstein to not work so hard, right? right? Like, he was kind of a schmuck to his family, right? right? But he was obsessed with his work. Was that a bad thing? No. If that was what he wanted to do with his time. So if you want to do that with your time, that's fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with working hard. In fact, there's nothing wrong with doing nothing but work if it's what you intend. I think right. that's the big difference. It's all about forethought, which is why the second step, we talked about step one being mastering the internal triggers. The second step is turning your values into time, which is why I, I think, and for this, app, this actually works quite well, I think, with people who are more oriented with the, with the business world in particular, because they understand this idea of inputs and outputs, right? right? That for every output in our life, we need an input. It's like if you go to the baker, uh, to kind of go on your, your, your cooking metaphor, if you go to the baker and say, hey, I need 100 loaves of bread. Uh, He's going to say, okay, well, I need flour, I need sugar, I need yeast, I need salt, I need all these ingredients, the input to make the output. Right. And so when it comes to the kind of lives we want, the work we do, how the relationships we have in our life, in order to get the output, we need the input. So what is our input? Our input is only two things. It is time and attention. That's it. That's it. So the way we turn our values into time 
is not by saying, you know, something amorphous, making a vision board or a five-year plan or saying, you know, I I just want to spend more time with my family or I wish I was, I was less distracted. No, no. Let's make it concrete, right? right? I want you to take out your calendar and ask yourself, how can you turn your values into time? What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become, okay? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So what we have to do is essentially turn those values into time on our calendar that you can tell someone's real values by looking at their checkbook, right? Looking at how they spend their money and how they spend their time. Not how they say they will spend their time, not how they profess their values, but actually looking at how they spend their time. So what we want to do is to ask ourselves, how would the person I want to become spend their time tomorrow? And we do this with three life domains. The first life domain is you, okay? If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people, we can't make the world a better place, we have to take care of ourselves first, which means if some of your values include taking care of your physical health. Now, I'm not saying that has to be one of your values, but if it is, okay, if you value physical health, if the person you want to become is the kind of person who takes care of their physical health, where is that time on, the, on your calendar? Right. Do you have a bedtime, right? How many of us with kids are hypocrites? And I used to do this all the time. I'd say, oh, you know, to my daughter, you have to go to bed. You need a bedtime. It's very important for your brain. And I, I've read up on all the literature about how important sleep is. We know how important sleep is. Nobody on the face of the earth doesn't know how important sleep is anymore. But where's your bedtime? Right? <laughs> Why don't we as adults have that? We need that time on our calendar. Time for exercise. Time for uh, uh, fulfillment and enriching activities for you. And look, if that's praying or meditating or painting or heck, going on social media or playing a video game, great. Put that time in your schedule for yourself. Now, I'm not saying it has to be all day. Budget that time. How much time would the person you want to become spend on themselves? Then your relationships. That's the next domain. Part of the reason we are suffering through this loneliness epidemic and that psychologists are telling us that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as smoking and obesity from a a, a lifespan perspective is because we have lost the regular engagement that we used to have on our calendars with people we love. That as the nation has become more secular, we don't have church and synagogue and mosque and even the secular institutions. Robert Putnam, by the way, this is not a new phenomenon. Robert Putnam wrote about this in 1990 in his book, Bowling Alone, that we don't have these civic organizations. It used to be bowling league was every Thursday night. Right? right, And we knew that we had to be there because our friends depended on us. We need to bring that back. If not, right. you know, in, in person, we can do it through Zoom. We can have those regular occasions. So how much time would the person you want to become spend with your family? So for this executive who was, you know, to him, spend, uh, working and making money was how he was contributing to the family. If he sat down and asked himself with intent, how much time would the person I want to become spend with my son and my daughter? Right. That's simple exercise. And if it's no time, that's up to him, okay? That's his choice. Of course, he has other stakeholders in his life he needs to be, you know, talk to and make sure they're okay with it. Right, but the idea here is that, look, if what you want to spend with your children is one hour a week, spend that time fully present with them. Don't also check your phone and, and watch the football game. Be fully present with them. If it's one hour a week or... 10 hours a week, it doesn't matter. It's about doing what you said you would do with intent. And then finally, 
the work domain. And this is unfortunately where most people start as opposed to, I think, what should be the last of the three domains. This is where we have to budget out our work in terms of two types of work. We have what we call reactive work and we have reflective work. Reactive work, this is what fills up most people's days. Reacting to emails, reacting to phone calls, reacting to text messages, all day long reacting to things. But what studies find is that the real work, the strategizing, the planning, the making sure you're running in the right direction type work requires uninterrupted time. It requires reflection. So it's imperative that for pretty much anyone's job, you have to have at least some time in your day, even if it's 30 minutes, some time in your day to work without distraction so that you can think. You know, so many people I work with, they're running super fast in the completely opposite direction because they have no time to reassess and look at their moral compass and see, wait, is my company going in the right direction? Is my life going in the right direction? Is my family going in the right direction? You have to have that some amount of time in your day uh, booked and reserved and kept sacred for you. Right. It makes a lot of sense because I think what we don't think about somehow just takes us over, right? And then I can think for myself, it's interesting what you're saying about having lost a lot of weight. I also lost 100 pounds. And the way I did that was I, I had a very key incident where I got used to this concept of what are negative emotions coming to tell me. I cut myself a slice of cake. This is when I was trying to lose weight. I had all sorts of, you know, things that I was trying to do. I had just gotten off bed rest with a twin pregnancy that was really complicated and I had gained a hundred pounds and I, I needed to lose it. And I cut myself a slice of cake and I got busy with my kids. And that whole afternoon I was feeling such shame and guilt and just regret because I ate this cake. And then I came back into the kitchen and I realized I never actually ate the cake. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, I can throw this cake in the garbage now. And I didn't have to feel that shame and guilt and regret. And then I thought, wow, this is so interesting. What are shame and guilt and regret coming to tell me about my eating habits and what I want to do? And that was the start of my 100-pound weight loss journey, just that feeling of, wait, why shame and guilt and regret? If I had made the decision that I deserve this piece of cake for whatever permission I was giving myself, why was I feeling such shame, right? Yeah. So, and why shame as opposed to guilt? That was also interesting for me because shame is like an other directed emotion, right? We feel shame when we've broken our moral code and it becomes public. And of course, when you're overweight, your lack of quote unquote self-control is, is you're just visible to the world. Even if somebody could be very slim by nature and by metabolism and really has no self-control when it comes to food at all, but that's how it's perceived, Right. So I said, wait a minute, this is so interesting, right? I don't actually have to feel these emotions because I never actually ate the cake. So I never have to eat the cake, right? And that was step one. It's such a similar journey. You know, it's it's so many people that that I speak with who who struggle with their weight. You know, we we go through these phases where we think it's about the cake, right? I I, I had this with McDonald's. I used to be obsessed with McDonald's and just fast food in general, but particularly my drug of choice was was McDonald's. And for a while, I started blaming McDonald's, right? I say it was, oh, it's the fast food companies. They make their food so delicious. And we hear something very similar today with the technology companies, right? The evil app developers. Oh, yeah, their algorithms are addicting people. And they, you know, and look, I I know all about these tactics. I I wrote a book called Hooked, which was all about how to build these products. So I know every trick in the book. And I will tell you, they're good, right? They're not that good, right? McDonald's food is delicious that delicious. Right. Really, every obese person will tell you, if we're honest with ourselves, when I overate, I didn't overeat because the food was delicious. 
I overate because I was stressed, because I was anxious, because I was lonely, because I was guilty and felt shameful because I had overeaten. That's why I would keep overeating. It was, it was an emotion regulation problem that I just didn't have the tools to deal with in a healthy manner. And once we could address those, tool, uh, those, those issues and, and have a new set of tools that didn't require me to do this maladaptive, harmful behavior that distracted me by taking my, my, my emotions elsewhere, uh, that's when I could, I could start living a healthier life and, and start becoming the person I wanted to become. It's true, because if you think about, I mean, for me, I really didn't have technology for a very long time. I wasn't into it. I didn't have the internet in my house. When I had to go onto social media to build my author platform, I at first didn't have great, um, didn't have great defenses against it at first, right? Because Mm -hmm. it was very new to me and, you know, what these things were important. So it took me time to say, okay, wait a minute, I can block out time. Like if I'm on Instagram, I don't have to feel shame if that's what I scheduled, like, for the next 20 minutes, I will be mindfully doing what my social media manager told me to do on Instagram. I don't have to feel shame about being on Instagram because that's what I plan to do for those 20 minutes. Tw- minute exactly. 21, I need, to, I need to click off though, because then I'm going to start like just, you know, watching everybody's cats be cute or something, right? Like it's time <laughs> to just like, okay, that was cute, but like I'm done. It's minute 21. My timer beeped. And I, that's where I do use technology. I do have time blocking apps that really help me. Um, I recently used your techniques in a very interesting way. So I've been working on my podcast and I needed to learn audacity. Now, something that people don't know about me, I'm very bright. I clearly like can learn things rapidly. I am like so not technologically savvy that it's, it's to the net level of a disability. So I said, I was just watching these YouTube videos about like how to use audacity and I'm trying to figure all this stuff out and I can't figure it out and making a million mistakes. And then I couldn't find an audio file and I was freaking out. And I said, you know what? And then I started distracting myself with other stuff. And I said, you know what? What's the emotional trigger here? The emotional trigger is I hate feeling stupid and I hate feeling like I'm wasting my time. So I called a yeah. friend of my, mine who's a programmer and I was like, can you just come over and help me with this? So she said, well, why don't we look at your file directory? And I said, what's a file directory? And she's like, you don't need a programmer. You need a 10-year-old who knows how to turn the computer on. I said, right, but can you come over and show me what the file directory is? Because then she was just able to show me because learning it for myself, I would figure it out, but I wouldn't know that it's called a file directory because like I'm not techie and I don't think that way. She's like, you see that little button that says settings? That's the little button that has the settings in it. Like, oh, that actually makes sense. Okay. But the idea of me trying to figure it out, I'm feeling like my time is valuable and I could be spending it like being productive when I'm just trying to learn how to use this app. To me, that's a very painful thought. Having my friend come over and having her teach me how got rid of all those triggers. So I automatically was able to focus. I had the smartest person added in the room, teach me how to use it. And then I didn't feel like I was wasting my time because she's not going to waste my time because she knows this stuff, right? And I can move on then, right? And it was like, you know what? Don't teach it to yourself. Yes, you could learn it yourself, but where's the like, there's this moral component about bootstrapping it. Like if if a 10-year-old could figure it out, I should be able to figure it out. And who cares about the moral domain of that? It's not how I value spending my time. I just want to know how to use the program. I don't value spending the time learning how to use the program, right? Yeah, Yeah. Have her teach me. yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, I think the, the, the benefit of a time box calendar is that you no longer measure yourself by what you finish. I think the, the reason that I hate to-do lists so much, or I should say more specifically, running your life with a to-do list, 
is that a to-do list is nothing more than a register of output. Right. But, you know, I don't, I have never met anyone in my entire life who runs their day on a to-do list and finishes everything on that list. It does not exist. It's always, there's always more stuff to put on that list to finish because humans are terrible at predicting how long something will take them to finish. And study after study has shown this. Like, look at your example, right? I want to post my podcast. My to-do list says post podcast, right? Learn this software. But then you start using it. And what you thought would take 30 minutes has now taken three hours. How would you know that? You can't know that. So in, in your mind, if you're the kind of person who uses a to-do list to manage their time, you're a failure. You don't get to check the box. But that's silly because there's all these exogenous factors that prevent you from finishing a task, which is why the person who keeps a time box calendar does not measure themselves by what they finish, okay? Your goal is to not finish anything, okay? Right. What, what is this guy talking about? Not finish anything. How am I going to get my work done? Your goal with a time box calendar is one thing. Work on whatever it was that you said you're going to work on or do whatever it is you said you're going to do, whether it's playing with your kids for an hour or do the laundry or whatever it is you said you're going to do with your time. Do that thing without distraction for as long as you said you would. That's it. That's it. It's not about finishing. It's about working on the task for as long as you said you would without distraction. So how would this look? You said to yourself, instead of Figure out, you know, learn this software, which could take 30 minutes or could take, you know, three months. Who knows? You don't know until you start getting into it. Instead, what you're going to say is, I'm going to work on this for 30 minutes per day for the next week. That's it. 30 minutes a day for the next week or however much time, an hour. It doesn't matter. Whatever you say is, is how you want to express your values, right? How much time would the person I want to become spend on this particular task? And then you're only going to evaluate yourself by whether you worked on that task for as long as you said without distraction. And here's the kicker. People who use that technique, the people right. who use time boxing as opposed to to-do list, they finish more. They get more done than the people who use the to-do list, even though they're not measuring themselves by how much they finish. Why? You hit on it. Because after 15 minutes of, I don't know how to do this, you feel incompetent right? And that feeling of incompetence is a negative internal state. It feels crappy. So what do we do? Oh, let me just check what's going on in the news. Let me just check email. Let me do something to gain agency and feel like I know what I'm doing and feel competent. And so it turns out people who just measure themselves by how many to-dos they ticked off, they get constantly distracted with every fleeting sensation. Whereas the person who learns to time box and only measure themselves based on, look, you know what? I gave this my best shot for 30 minutes. And here's the things that I need to figure out. And then I'm going to call my friend or then I'm going to, you know, schedule some time tomorrow to get back at it. And maybe in the meantime, I'll figure out something to do, while, you know, while I go on a walk or something. That is the person who actually accomplishes more because they plan their time with intent. Right. It's very true because we don't think that that's what we're doing. We don't think that um, we're trying to regain agency, what we would say in the old psychology world as like a flight into health, right? Like, I remember when I started on Instagram, my social media manager said I have to start on Instagram and I would constantly go back to LinkedIn because like I have 16K followers on LinkedIn. I get how LinkedIn works or something about that platform that makes sense to me. And I don't get Instagram. I'm not a visual person. So like I kept like flipping back to LinkedIn. It's like, oh, it's such a flight into health because I feel competent here and I feel incompetent here. But if I want to get competent here or if I want to get whatever the result I'm looking for here, then I need to spend time being uncomfortable here, right? Because going back there isn't going to get me where I'm trying to go. 
So that it's just an exactly. interesting thing. Um, in terms of, since we are post-traumatic parents here and, you know, everybody in this community is really reclaiming their lives after a tragedy or whether it's our tagline is how can I give my kids a normal childhood if mine was anything but. But even if just recent events in our lives have just left us feeling completely knocked for a loop, that's what it feels like to be a post-traumatic parent. Like how can I now parent when I've had all these experiences that left me feeling broken? So one of the things that we talk about a lot is post-traumatic growth, right? And the idea that your trauma can actually be your superpower for me, my trauma is certainly my superpower. And what we wanted to know about, and I find with every person I interview, whoever I talk to, anyone who's done like amazing work in something has an experience of post-traumatic growth. So I wanted to ask you, is there ever a time in your life where you've really been through something and it ended up sparking growth? How much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, I think that's absolutely uh, correct, that I think that our post-traumatic growth is what makes us unique, is where we find our unique contribution to others. And it's really, you know, a lot of times I get this question around like, you know, uh, what would you tell your younger self or what would you do differently? And my answer is nothing that, you know, that our lives, our experiences and and the the bruises and, and cuts we've gained along the way, both physically and emotionally, if we can learn from them, then of course we can grow from them. So at a very young age, I was clinically obese and that was certainly a struggle. And this was before bullying was a bad thing. Like right. bullying, <laughs> when I grew up, it's like something that you just have to live with. I'm much happier that the world is the way it is now that we don't allow the kind of bullying that, that, that I think, you know, people in my generation went through in school that was just considered boys will be boys. And that's what kids do. But it was very difficult. Like I was the kid who, you know, I grew up in Florida and uh, we always would go to a pool somewhere and I was the kid who would never take their shirt off even when right. I jumped in the pool because I didn't want anybody to see my roles. And you know, there's a lot that comes with that. And I've had uh, a few businesses fail. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that was a very, very difficult process. I started these companies with my wife. And so, you know, that was a very difficult time to go through, uh, you know, both potentially losing a, a relationship. Thankfully, my, my wife is, uh, is my rock and we've been married for 18 years now. Oh, and wow. so that, that's been a very stabilizing force. But We've been through, through some really rocky times. I remember uh, when my last company, when we were in the middle of, of starting this company, I got shingles and oh, I wow. went to see my doctor and I was in my early thirties, I guess I was. And uh, uh, the doctor, he looked at me, he's like, you know, nobody gets shingles at your age unless something is seriously going on. And it was, I mean, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was very high stress uh, and it was manifesting physically. So yeah, there's no shortage. There's a lot of stuff we don't have time to go into right. that I'm going through. But I think there is a myth in our culture, unfortunately perpetuated by self-help, that feeling bad is bad, that right. you know, we have to escape it at all costs, that if you're not happy all the time, that something is wrong with you. I mean, how many books have happiness in the title or right. you know, how to be happy? And I think that that's, you know, happiness is wonderful. But our species is not evolved to be happy all the time. That is not our default state. If you think about it logically, right? If you imagine 200,000 years ago when our species first evolved, if there was ever a group of homo sapiens who was happy and contented and didn't feel any discomfort, our ancestors probably killed and ate them, right? Because right. that would Too not happy be- happy is not good. 
Right. To be constantly happy is not, is not good. You need disquietude. You need discomfort. You need dissatisfaction. Get you to move your butt and do something, right? Think of like the Roman concept of bread and circuses, right? The reason for bread and circuses, if you think about it, is let's keep people content enough that they don't start agitating for change. It's a great way to keep a population not changing, which keeps the rulers in power, right? But it's in your own internal mind, it's also like that, right? Like, and if you think about the Declaration of Independence, we're guaranteed the pursuit of happiness, not happiness. It's the pursuit right. that's important, not the right. happiness. It's a byproduct. It's never the thing that we can actually target and get. That's right. And I think it's our species' perpetual disquietude that keeps us inventing and creating and overturning despots and reaching for the moon. I mean, it's all about the fact that we want something we don't currently have. It, it requires us to be uncomfortable. Uh, so I think that that mind shift was very liberating for me because I used to think like, gee, if I'm not happy all the time, uh, something's wrong with me. If I'm not always loving my work and my family's always awesome and you know, that shouldn't be the expectation. The, the expectation should be okay. <laughs> Right, but we never want it, right? Like we never want it, like even for our kids, right? My traumatic experiences, like you, I was bullied as a kid and I, you know, I, I lost a parent at a very young age and I went through a lot of really traumatic experiences. They are what made me who I am today. I can't say they were mm -hmm. bad things, but it's not like I want my kids to go through them, right? And yet the experiences that bring us discomfort are the ones that make us into, you know, superheroes as opposed to just like average Joes, right? It's, it's those experiences, but we don't want our kids to undergo them. It's this essential dialectic of parenting. Right. But, but I would say that there is a real risk of overprotecting our children. There's a wonderful book called The, the Lesson of a, a, a Skin Knee. I think, mm -hmm. I think I got the title. I might have loved it a bit. But the idea here is that we don't want to be these helicopter parents that are constantly hovering over our kids. And if a kid, you know, I, I, I used to see this when my daughter was much younger at the, at the park. Uh, a kid fell down. Oh my gosh. You know, right. as if no kid has ever fallen down before and skinned their knee. We must immediately remedy that situation. I see that, you know, all the way up until college. Um, my, my kid can't do the college application. I got to help them. I got to step in. I got to fix it for them because if they don't get into college or they don't get a good grade or they don't, you know, they don't get a oh, good yeah. grade on that homework, what might happen? I don't know what's going to happen. Nothing. They'll learn from it. Right? Right. It's okay. Certainly they don't have to go through the kind of trauma that, that, uh, uh, leaves very deep scars, but I think that, uh, and we, we certainly shouldn't be the source of that trauma. We shouldn't intentionally inflict that, God forbid, but teaching kids from a very young age, how to learn self-resilience through these small acts of, you know what? You got an F on a test. You okay? made the choice Doesn't not matter. to study and now you got an yeah. F. So how are you going to resolve it with your teacher? Come back to me and let it's me know your plan, kid. I think right. every kid should get a few Fs on a test once in a while. I mean, that is a good thing. They need to feel that discomfort. They need to feel like, oh gosh, if I don't change my behavior, I'm going to keep doing this. And you know, for some kids, that's fine. And I'm not an advocate actually of saying your kid has to not get Fs. If your kid wants to get Fs, okay. <laughs> that's yeah. also a decision they're, that they're making. I'm at all a certain for age. that. I'm all for that. Like, okay, so you made this choice. This is what's the consequence. And what do you plan on doing about it? Right. It's not, I had this conversation with my daughter's ballet teacher. So my daughter is like gifted at ballet and she's been taking lessons for years. And this year she decided she wants her Sundays off. She doesn't want to take ballet. And the teacher called me and said, 
you know, your daughter, you know, then she's going to, if she's going to want to come back, she'll be behind the class. And don't you think you should be encouraging her? And I said to my daughter, I said, like, you know, let's talk about this ballet situation. And she said to me, mommy, I know what you're going to say. I said, what am I going to say? She said, it's your very own mistake and you can make it if you want. I said, right. I do think it's a mistake. I do think I believe in practicing discipline. She knows I practice martial arts. I believe in discipline. Um, it's your very own mistake. You're, in, you're going into fourth grade. If you don't want to do ballet this year, I don't want her to be a proficient ballerina who hates it, right? If you right. don't want to do ballet this year, don't do ballet this year. Yes, it is your very own mistake to make, but don't give into that thought that now I'll be a little behind my peers and I'll be in a younger group when I go back. Don't let that be your barrier if you do decide to go back. But yes, it's your very own mistake. And if you want to make it, you have the right to make it. I struggle with this right now with, with my daughter. She inherited my sweet tooth. And I can see she sometimes eats things that I know are not good for her and can give her cavities, but I, I, I can't, I can't, she knows she already, I did my job as a parent to educate her about, Hey, you know what? The FDA says uh, a child of your age needs, I think it's 14 grams of of added sugar a day. Okay. She knows that. So let's say she, what? She gets a cavity. Okay. She, she's overweight. She quits ballet. If, if it's important to her later in life, like I, I love the experience now looking back that I had and I overcame my obesity. That was actually a really formative experience for me in my life. And so it was, like you said, it was my mistake to make. And I'm, I don't want to deny her the ability to change her path later on. If your daughter says, you know what? Ah, I really do want to be a ballerina. Are you saying she can't figure it out? She, of course she can. She'll work right. harder and she'll find a way and that struggle will make her stronger as well. Right. And I like that mantra. I teach it to parents in my parenting class. I have this all the time. Post-traumatic parents say to me, I just want my kids to be happy. I say, that's the one thing I can't teach you. Right. I can't. You certainly it's hard enough to have to have an emotional state yourself. You cannot have an emotional state by proxy. You want me to teach you how to teach your kids how to have self-efficacy. You want me to help you teach your kids how to be emotionally healthy that I can teach you. I cannot guarantee your kids will be happy. Right. I can. But and that's the, one of the big pieces is it's my very own mistake and I get to make it. I also get to right. fix it and clean it up, right? Meaning I am not going to be that person who's going to call the teacher. I once taught graduate school and I had the mom of a student call me. We're master's statistics, master's level statistics class. The mom called me because she wanted to, so to speak, give her daughter an excuse note. I said, when we're in, a, by the time we're getting our master's degree, we don't call the, we don't get mom to call the professor. Master's degrees are not, are not, I don't know, requirements in life. And if your daughter does not have enough time because of all these other ventures and pursuits she's doing to take her test in statistics, then mom cannot call me. You know, with parents calling the the boss and saying, how could you not hire my daughter? (laughs) Where does it end? It's crazy. At some point, yes, your daughter doesn't have enough time to devote to my course. Great. Take a leave of absence. You know, she's starting a business, she's busy, she's getting married, whatever it is. But certainly yeah. I am not, you know, and she's like, but you're a psychologist, you're supposed to care about people. And I said, Yes, I care about your daughter enough to tell you that exactly. calling your daughter's professor in a master's program is really not a good idea. You'll see I'm maybe in ten her. years that I was right. Yeah, I mean this this is my philosophy, I think, with parenting in general. My philosophy is that we are not raising children. Your job as a parent is to not raise a child. Your job as a parent is to raise a future adult. Exactly. A future adult does not have their mommy or daddy call <laughs> a professor 
and say, oh, I don't like this grade or, or I need an excuse. That is not a future adult behavior. Exactly. And to me, it was just so, yeah, it was the logical extension of a lifetime of helicopter parenting that the mother didn't, she wasn't uncomfortable calling me. She, you know, sometimes when you call someone, you're a little uncomfortable asking for a favor. You kind of stammer at the beginning and you, you know, you talk in a way that makes you like everyone knows, like I'm asking for something I don't quite have the right to ask for. Here it was just like, yes, yeah, so I'm going to need you to give my daughter an extension. She didn't have any problem wow. calling. She was very comfortable with that. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate you doing this. Oh, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the wonderful questions and taking so much interest in my work. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, your work was a game changer for like, I had my whole community read it and like everybody was just, they loved it. Thank you. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that, but podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.